Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the extraordinarily aerobic coach Trevor Connor. In episode 51, which we published several weeks ago, we had a chance to speak with Jay-Z, or at least the Jay-Z of the exercise physiology world, Dr. Steven Seiler. We took a deep dive into the polarized model of endurance training, or so we thought. We probably received more questions about that episode than any episode to date. Many of you wanted to know more about how to execute a polarized training plan. We thought about doing a special episode to answer all of those questions, but instead we begged, we pleaded, we got Dr. Seiler to share a lovely late summer Norwegian afternoon with us. He generously obliged and shares many more details about the polarized approach in today's episode. The things we do for our devoted Fast Talk listeners. During our conversation, we discussed first, why cycling is an aerobic sport. Secondly, what is meant by the two thresholds, LT1 and LT2, and how you can go about determining yours, both in terms of power and heart rate. Dr. Seiler provides a test protocol to determine LT2, which may sound very similar to Neil Henderson's test that was described in episode 33, Is FTP Dead? If you haven't listened to that episode, please check it out. It's one of our most popular. However, in Dr. Seiler's approach and in his explanation, he doesn't feel like the 20-minute test is adequate. Three, why it's important not to overestimate LT1 or LT2 and how to use them to determine your zones in a three-zone model. Four, several of you asked about zone one training, how long, how much, and especially how easy. We take a deep dive into why it's important to keep those rides easy and the value of long rides. Finally, we talk about the 80-20 principle of the polarized model and how to put it into practice to map out your week. One thing to note, a lot of listeners ask for example numbers to help them better understand the polarized approach. We chose to use Trevor's numbers for a few reasons. First, he's a big believer in polarized training and has had much success with it. Second, he's a very aerobically developed cyclist. Third, like many of you, he's a master's rider with limited time to train. Finally, the data was readily available, allowing us to give example numbers throughout. Trevor has specifically asked me to remind everyone out there that he isn't sharing his numbers because he is an egotistical machine. He's just an aerobic machine. Our featured guest today is, of course, Dr. Steven Seiler, a professor of sports science in Norway, where he has lived for 22 years. He sits on the executive board of the well-respected European University College for Sports Science. It was his groundbreaking research that helped define the polarized model. We also hear from Dr. John Hawley, another prominent name in the exercise science world from Australia. His research over the past few decades has helped to define endurance, sports, training, and nutrition. He talks with us about one of the important but lesser known gains of long rides. Finally, we speak with Kiel Reinen of the Trek Segafredo World Tour team. Kiel spoke with us about why even pros sometimes prefer two-a-day rides. So, are you ready to know what going easy really means? Are you ready to understand what some of the great endurance athletes are doing to train? Are you ready to get polarized? Well, let's make you fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatec. The more you train, the better your recovery needs to be. 
Normatec's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skunch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team using the Normatec boots and recovery stations set up for riders at races like the Colorado Classic. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness, so you can train harder and race faster. Save $100 with code FASTTALK18 at normatecrecovery.com. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K-1-8 at normatecrecovery.com. Let's get back to the show. The response that we got from the first episode with Dr. Seiler was incredible. And the, the, the letters and emails and things keep pouring in, actually. Um, I don't see that uh, abating anytime soon. But we're lucky enough to have him on the show a second time. And we wanted to dive even deeper into the polarized approach, get more details on just sort of putting it in practical terms, how to execute on all the things we spoke about last time in that episode 51, I believe it was. Let's dive right in and uh, get started here. One thing I have to bring up, and, and I hope all the listeners uh, appreciate this, it is a Sunday afternoon. Dr. Seiler just told us that school starts up tomorrow, so he is literally spending the end of his summer talking to us because he wants to get this information out to all of you. So uh, please show your appreciation. He's on Twitter. He, he is very active on Twitter. I would say go and follow him. It's lots of great information. A Norwegian summer at that. A beautiful Norwegian summer is coming to a close, and Dr. Seller is with us. Jay-Z, as we like to call him, Jay-Z. Uh, it, it could snow next week. So that's we true. Have to that's that true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you guys are making me sound like uh, making a big sacrifice, but this is uh, a lot of fun. I, I I actually warmed up for this talk by doing a uh, a sixty minute test on my bicycle ergometer. <laughs> so well, there you go. So wow. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. let's go. Yeah. Um, my butt hurts, but I am ready. <laughs> awesome. That's a true cyclist. <laughs> let's uh, let's start by defining some terms. Let's start with aerobic versus anaerobic. Oh, great. Great place to start because it is just fundamentally misunderstood, it seems. Uh, we tend to overestimate the anaerobic contribution in endurance sports, and we tend to underestimate the aerobic. So I can give you data just to exemplify that. A two-minute all-out effort. You know, if you do a two-minute race, then about – 65 to 70% of the watts you produce or the energy you expend will be accounted for by oxygen that you consume during those two minutes. In other words, aerobic. So even a two-minute race is two-thirds aerobic. Wow. So you can imagine most bicycling races, they are very much dominated by the aerobic energy system, your ability to, to – use oxygen and deliver oxygen to the muscle and then convert this to, you know, the, the muscular contraction. So we have this tendency to call just because you have blood lactate above four millimolar, you say now we're anaerobic. Well, that, that's wrong. Uh, it just means that there is a higher glucose contribution and there's a higher leakage of lactate production, but there's still a huge aerobic 
and, and dominantly aerobic contribution. So that's the first thing we got to get clear on is uh, that cycling is an aerobic sport. It's an endurance sport. It is not an anaerobic sport. The exception to that would be the kilo on the track, the, 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 the sprint. Those, you, you could say, that they, they no longer correlate with uh, aerobic capacity. But everything from the 4,000-meter individual pursuit, you know, a four-minute race and up, it's all about the aerobic system. So something that gets really popularized over here, uh, particularly in North America, is this concept that in a race, at the end of the race, there's a lot of attacks and you have to sprint. And that's why people say that, that cycling is an anaerobic sport, because if you don't have those big anaerobic fibers to, to do those attacks, to be in that sprint, you're not going to win the race. And, and there is some truth to that. But just to give you an example, I have had several athletes come to me and say, I've got to work on my top end. I've got to work on that jump. And I've learned whenever they tell me that, I'm like, send me some race files. And when I look at their race files, the two hours or three hours before all those attacks start happening, they're just below their threshold. And the point I make to them is if you're just below threshold, I don't care how much top end work you do. You're going to have no jump after three hours. If you're in the race in the field before all those attacks happen at, at 80% nose breathing, you're going to have a jump. And that's what people forget. Um, they don't work in that aerobic side. So they are just struggling to hang on. And when they, they get to the, the part where you have to jump, they go, oh, I got no top end. It's no, you, you don't have the endurance. You don't have the aerobic side. Yeah, well, you, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I would say is that they, that's the misunderstanding is that it's the endurance that sets, that creates the platform for the top end. It's not that anaerobic burst. Let's, let's keep moving. Help us, help us understand LT1 and LT2, Dr. Seiler. Well, what we would like to know is that intensity range where you're, you're starting to push the, the glycolytic machine. You're starting to generate quite a bit of lactate in the musculature. Uh, we want to find when it first starts, which we call LT1. And then we want to find the point where it goes kind of out of control in the sense that you, it doesn't stabilize. Blood lactate just keeps climbing. Uh, because production just exceeds the ability to, to remove it. So that from the start of, of, of a kind of a clear increase in lactate appearance to the point where it's no longer sustainable or no longer uh, elim can be eliminated at the same rate it's produced, that is that area between LT1 and LT2 that we in a laboratory would try to uh, identify with, with advanced technology. So I was giving this a, a lot of thought last night, and, and this is an oversimplification, but an easy way to think of these three zones or these two breakpoints. And LT2, just a reminder, you know, in the U.S., when you're talking about FTP or anaerobic threshold, you're, you're getting at LT2. LT1 isn't talked a lot about in the U.S. A lot of people aren't even aware that we have these two breakpoints. But a simple way to, to think about them um, and, and I'm terrified to say this, Dr. Seller, because I'm, I'm worried you're immediately going to go, Trevor, that's the, the worst way to think of it possible. <laughs> um, but we have three types of muscle fibers. So everybody's aware of we have a, your type one pure aerobic fibers, and then you have two types of, of 
these type 2 fibers, um, type 2A, which can work very aerobically or work anaerobically. They, they can kind of, they're, they're very plastic, depending on the type of training you're doing. And then we have these 2X fibers, which are those big, strong, very anaerobic fibers that you, you use when you're sprinting, but they don't last very long. And so a simple way to think of it is this zone one up until LT1 is when you're basically just using slow twitch muscle fibers. LT1 is that break point where you have to start recruiting more of those, those 2A fibers, which can work aerobically, but just not as well as your slow twitch. You're going to start building up some lactate. LT2, or, or your anaerobic threshold, is you know, it's over that point that you really have to start recruiting those 2X to, to continue generating power. And because they don't last very long when you're above LT2, you're, you're on a short time frame. Okay, so do you want to tell me that was the, the worst, uh, worst way to think of it possible? No, it's, it's a reasonable, I mean, it's an explanation that is used. The, the idea of, of motor unit recruitment, as it's called, and how, how this proceeds, it's probably a bit more complicated than that, yes. just because as you ride, the, the recruitment of these different uh, pools of fibers changes because of fatigue. You, you start having to recruit some of the type 2A, for example, that you didn't need at the start of the ride. So, but I think that explanation, that framework is, is, is valid. But the question we have to get to is how do we make some reasonable estimates mm-hmm. of these breakpoints without actually measuring blood lactate? Yeah, how do you determine those three zones if you're not able to get into a lab? Yeah, I, I thought about this after all the comments. And obviously, you know, I, I work in a laboratory or have, and, and we've tested 200 cyclists probably in the lab in the last few years. And, and, and we often tell them, look, one of the reasons you come into our lab is you get this free information that helps you to understand your training. But it's not available to everybody. So we're using a lingo based on some measurement tools that aren't accessible to everyone. So I decided, all right, let, what is accessible? And, and, and let's try to reframe the, the intensity zones in terms of kind of a different test regime that doesn't depend on blood lactate at all. So I want our re, uh, the listeners to think in terms of some, some sixes. <laughs> Uh, and only a few, only a couple of them are really critical. But let's let's start with six seconds. Six seconds would be the time frame that you would be able to produce absolute maximum power on the bike. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's anaerobic. I mean, that's just pure. How explosive is this rider? So you spin them up, and then you go all out for six seconds, and they'll reach some peak power. This is this is like sprinting and you know the olympic match sprint and and you'll see you'll see numbers in the you know 1000 plus yes area for watts the the best in the world 2000 watts but even average riders with you know they're reasonably trained are going to break uh, three digits on this kind of test absolutely so that's six seconds now we don't really need to test that but we just kind of mentally know that that represents that upper end now, the next six or, or 60 is 60 seconds. That's your classic kilo on the track, the kilometer. It's about 60. It's a little bit more than 60 seconds for most, but it's, it's 60 seconds of work all out. Well, now that's a pretty good measure, a, a working man's measure of your anaerobic capacity. 
but you don't we we don't even we don't need to measure that either to, to get these zones but that just kind of gives us a reference frame sure now we get to the heart of the matter six minutes research shows if i go into the research if i if i use testing data i can show that on average if you give if you put a person at the power output where they they the lowest power output output where they reached VO2 max, they'll be able to hold that if they're fresh for about 360 seconds, about six minutes. So my first recommendation to our listeners would be that we're going to use a six-minute test as a poor man's estimate for VO2 max power. So that sets that 100% of your aerobic capacity the power that would elicit your VO2 max. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a little above your your, your power for, for LT2. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so right now we're talking about this is, again, six-minute power. Uh, the best way to determine is just say this is my six-minute power. But six minutes on the power duration curve, if you're going all out for six minutes, that will – Put you at about your max, your VO2 peak, your VO, and, and your, and about your heart rate peak. Okay, so it's a it's a good way to get a decent estimate of, of what's my maximum aerobic capacity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of hundred percent on the scale. Now the next one, <laughs> sixty minutes. And that's just mean. <laughs> this is where that's just mean. Yeah, that, this but this is where people. This is where people cheat. I'm sorry to say it. Right. They but do. Cycling is an endurance sport, and 60 minutes is the most fundamental measure. Think about it the hour of power, the, 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 the 60 minutes on the track. This is, you know, Sir Bradley Wiggins setting the, the hour record, holding 440 watts for 60 minutes. That's the standard. That is, so if I know what you can do for 60 minutes, I really have a good measure of your, your true race usable capacity. There's going to there's gonna be a surge in our record attempts. I can feel it. I can feel it. We, well, it, it is the, it's so beautiful. It's so straightforward. And there's no way to, to lie about it. You either do it or you don't. What is your 60-minute power? But what's happening is we have all these different ways, these equations and different ways of getting around things. And people are going shorter and shorter and then saying, well, I did I, I do an eight-minute test or a 15 <laughs> or a 20-minute test. And, well, I'm sorry, but that, that, that's not the same. Yeah. If that was the same, we wouldn't have the 60-minute test. You know, the hour of power would be the, you know, the 20 minutes of power times point or divided by 0. 0.9. Well, that, that doesn't, that's not what we do. So what I would say, if, if I'm going to be your coach, I'm going to say, hey, every couple of months, I'm going to get you on the bike and we're going to do a 60-minute test. And we're going to, then we're going to, that gives us a calibration, a really useful calibration. Now, again, I'm connecting this to research because research shows that well-trained, athletes they can hold their maximum lactate steady state for 60 minutes so it corresponds well with maximum lactate steady state so all of this is going to sound pretty familiar to our listeners we actually did an episode several months ago called is ftp dead and we talked about a a test that was designed by neil henderson which used five seconds to get at sprint power one minute to get at or a lot of people here call your anaerobic capacity a five-minute test to determine your VO2 max power, and then a 20-minute test 
to to get at that LT2. And yeah, they, they use a multi, uh, multiplier of 0.95 and then say that's, that's a pretty good estimate of your, your hour power. And their explanation was nobody wants to do an hour test. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say, no, go out and do that hour. If you're a cyclist, then, then I, do, I don't understand the logic. I mean, cyclists cycle for hours. So what in the world is the problem with doing a, a legitimate hour test? Now, let's let's get real here. You don't need to puke. You don't need to. <laughs> right. But you need to, to do what you're good for for an hour. And that's going to give us a rock solid watt value. That's that's it's like a lie detector test. You know, it's 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 a truth serum. You know, it tells me, OK. Yeah, this is this is what this person actually can do for an hour, and that gives me a a good starting point for for, for designing the training. And something we've said a few times is the, the one issue we have with the twenty minute test is a lot of people will will do it very fresh, or they will go into their data and find the best twenty minutes they ever did. They won't multiply it by 0.95 and go, well, that's my LT2. That's my anaerobic threshold. And they have a number that's way too high. And as we were just talking about, this is an aerobic sport. And if you're doing your training based on this number that that you set 30, 40 watts too high, you're not really training that aerobic system. And I'm a big believer that it's better to have that number be a little too low than a little too high. Because if it's a little too low, you're still doing some good aerobic work. But if it's too high, you're going to fail at your intervals, uh, which is, you can be mentally very frustrating, and you're training the wrong systems. Totally agree. And I, I mean, and that's the real reason why I'm so adamant about sticking to my guns and saying do the 60-minute test, because these 10 and 20-watt, you know, you say 30, 40, but it, it can be even 10 or 20-watt miscalculations, overestimations. It's almost always an overestimation, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to say. Ego. They, That's where ego yeah, comes in. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's huge. It represents total collapse. When athletes go out 20 watts too hard in the first half hour, then it's just a dismal result in the next 30 minutes because you missed it. And, and think if you multiply that times so many training sessions that people do, uh, based on being just 20, 20 watts over eager, or, or then we're getting it wrong. And so that's really why I'm sticking to my guns here and say, do the 60 minutes. Too. I want you to just be able to sustain for 60 minutes so that we get a, a true estimate of your uh, sustainable power. Uh, I just did one this afternoon, actually. Uh, and yeah, they're no fun. The, the, the first 10 minutes is pretty good, and then it starts hurting. Uh, but that's what I want. That's I want to find out the truth. And I found out the truth where I was. And now I've got a, a, re, a good calibration for, for the next six weeks of training. Uh, that's what I would want to give my athletes as a coach. Trevor, in, in terms of uh, the practical nature of this, What's the best way for somebody to do a 60-minute test? Is it if, if they have access to a steady climb to do it on that or a flat road? Or, I mean, some people might struggle to find a road that doesn't have a stop sign or a stoplight on it for 60 minutes. And then, of course, there's inside. So for me personally, when we're trying to get at those aerobic numbers, I prefer to do them on the flats. And, and this is something for another podcast. But most people can put out more power on a climb 
than they can on a flat road. So if you go and do an hour climb and use that number, again, it's going to be too high a number if you're then later on doing your interval work on a trainer or on a flat road, which is what a lot of people do. So I would prefer, I mean, if you, you want to get on a trainer, that's the most controlled, but otherwise do it out on a flat road. One other thing that, and again, Dr. Seiler, you can please tell me I'm, I'm an idiot, but threshold heart rate is threshold heart rate. It doesn't vary but, uh, that much. As you get fitter, it's going to stay the same. It's your power that's going to change. So sometimes people don't want to do that many one-hour tests. If you can get one good test and determine the, the threshold heart rate, I do a little bit of a cheat with my athletes where once I'm very confident in their threshold heart rate, if they go out and do a steady effort where they are holding right at that heart rate, and not in the first five minutes of the time trial, but let's say they did a 30-minute time trial. I might look at the the last 10 minutes of that time trial when, when the, they're, they're at that heart rate, it's good and steady, look at what that power is, and that's going to be pretty close. Yeah, I mean, heart rate is, is tricky here because it, it's going to drift. So for me, just now, when I did an hour, uh, the last, from about 20 minutes on, I'm at I'm in zone four. I'm in, in, in a five zone model. In other words, I'm in, you know, from about 87% of heart rate peak to, you know, I was up at around 93 at the end, you know. So it's going to drift a bit. It's going to be around, you know, I would guess for most people, if they're reasonably well trained for the 60 minute power, then a fairly big chunk of that time, they'll be at about 90% of their heart rate peak. So it's, you know, it's a significant heart rate and, and heart rate is tending to drift because of fatigue, because, you know, more motor units are being recruited. But this is this is what cycling. This is how it works. This is a, a time trial. You know, heart rate, heart rate drifts up and then hopefully flattens out a bit around 90. Blood lactate drifts up and flattens out. So there is it's, it's not a pure steady state situation. It never is you know, in, in a, in a race. Right. This might also be a, a good point to talk a little bit. You, you had mentioned the power duration curve. I know that with training peaks, um, particularly the WKO software, they, they use the power duration curve to actually come up with an estimate of your, your one hour power. And the power duration curve very quickly is they, they take your, your peak wattages for one second all the way through basically the, the longest ride you've done. Uh, and obviously, if, if you just took the, the raw data and tried to graph that, it would be a very jagged looking graph. But then they try to come up with a nice smooth curve. And their belief is that that curve is going to give a pretty good estimate of here's the best 60 minute power that you can do, which mm -hmm. they then somewhat correlate with your FTP. And I've actually been finding that that's when, when I do real tests with athletes, when I get them in the, the lab. It's pretty close, but but how how do you feel about it? You you had mentioned the power duration curve. Yeah, I mean, I like the power duration curve, and again, and, and it does tend to be fairly predictable in the sense that you know if I know your max power or average power for thirty minutes, then then I'm not going to be too surprised by by your sixty minute or your your six minute. You know, so they tend to move together. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. yep. you, you you can do some highly specialized training to get a, a little blip, a little specialization in a very specific point on the power duration curve. But but you know we always talk about in Norway that when we train correctly, that entire curve shifts. 
from four minutes to four hours. It, it all goes in the right direction if we're training correctly. And so I agree with you that if they're able to get at that and get a good curve, then it's going to be meaningful. It's going to, it's going to help us make some predictions. So let's say we've done this test, we've done the 60-minute test, and for anybody who's excited to give this a try, Chris and I actually just recorded an episode on the hour record where Chris started with a description of the last 10 minutes of his effort and how unbelievably miserable it was, so <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a copy of the article and you can uh, see if it correlates with what you've gone through in, in some of your tests, Dr. Seiler. No, it sounds great. <laughs> Uh, we might say don't bury yourself as much as Chris did because he finished by almost slamming into a wall. He was so exhausted. Yeah. But but if you want to go that hard, go that hard. The, uh, the most tragic part about that is um, the fact that my head unit was turned off for that hour, so I got zero data. We never but, got the data. Uh, I digress. Yeah. Oh, no. No. <laughs> what a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. lab the lab guy in me is is crying right now, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. the yeah, I was crying because we were writing a whole article on it and part of my job was analyzing his data and he finishes and goes, "Yeah, no data. Sorry." Yeah, you know, during the oh. hour hour record, you can't have the head unit in front of you, so it's always mounted under your saddle and the guy holding me accidentally turned it off in the process of holding no. it at the start. No. So. <laughs> it hurt. Oh, my. oh, it's easy to laugh now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So let's continue on. We've now done this test. And let's say somebody has done a 60-minute test and determined, so, so this is a case where you can truly say, determine their FTP power. How do you determine then your three zones? How do you figure out okay. LT1 and LT2? And should it be power-based or should it be heart rate-based or both? I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out a power based plan and then and then go from there. So what I would do is say that 60 minute power we're gonna call that the boundary between the upper end of zone two and the start of zone three. Mm -hmm. So that power output is gonna demarcate uh, zone two from zone three. The upper end of zone three is gonna be that six minute power. So you're not gonna go all the way up to your peak power. So there's essentially a zone four. Yeah, th then we're talking about some uh, power outputs that are associated with anaerobic capacity training and so forth. But uh, I'm going to kind of do a parallel to what we would call uh, power at VO2 max. Okay. Or maximum aerobic power. And that's going to be six-minute power. Mm -hmm. Okay? So now I've, I've made a line between Z zone two and zone three, and I've made a line for the upper end of zone three. Mm -hmm. All right. Now the next question is, all right, what, what about the lower end of zone two? You know, what's, what, how do I draw a line between low intensity training zone one and then that threshold area zone two? And, and again, you know, you're asking me to do some generic work that normally I'm going to be very individualized about. I'm going to bring people in and test them. But based on all the data I have access to, I'm going to say take 80% of your 60-minute power, 0.8 times whatever that power output you achieve for 60 minutes and i'm going to call that the threshold or the the the, the line between zone one and zone two that's my best estimate you're you're being pretty uh pretty generous there so i the, i use wko uh, to analyze my athletes and it doesn't really allow me to individualize because yeah. i use your three zone model so i have to just use a percentage even when i've had them in the lab and measured 
uh, their their LT1. I can't put that into WKO, and I actually use 77%. Yeah. So, and, well, and I, I'm rounding, I'm choosing some yeah. round numbers, but this at least gets us in the ballpark. And then what we have to get people to do is just be true to it. Be true to, they say, well, that seems actually a little high. Then, okay, adjust. But it'll be close. It'll, it won't be crazy wrong. And, and then what I'm going to say to you is, even though I'm setting that at point eight, I'm going to say, look, most of your rides then at, in low intensity zone are going to be 0.7 times that or 0.65 times that 60 minute power. So they're going to be, I'm creating a kind of a safety margin. Does that make sense? It does. And I will say that and one other way that you can kind of get at it, I watch my athletes 2.5 hour power. I don't ever ask them to go out and do a, a 2.5 hour test, but ultimately in long rides or if they go up for the, the big group mm. training ride, you'll get that 2.5 hour power. And I have found that's actually when, when I've gotten athletes into the lab and tested them, that 2.5 hour power is pretty close to what we, we measure LT1 at. Yeah. But yeah. So, so again, I think the most common, the whole thing tends to get shifted in the wrong direction. People tend to overestimate everything. <laughs> so if we can just get people to be more, what should I say, more uh, conservative on their power estimations for these thresholds, then we're, we're, we're taking a big step in the right direction right. Uh, with the overall training based, what on, based on what I'm seeing in the way people are discussing things on the internet. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're actually being more conservative than what I am in terms of that estimation of LT1. I just want to get people to start moving in the right direction and realizing that, that they're often overestimating these values by 20, 30 watts, which is, it's a lot. That's 10, 15%, you know, for, 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 for LT1, for a lot of people, their LT1 may be around 200 watts. Right. Or some might even be lower. Right. To just give a great example of that, after we did the first podcast with you, I, I received an email from one of our listeners who was trying to figure out his, his three zones. And he emailed to say that you know his, his FTP was 340 watts. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but let's just go on the assumption that, yes, his FTP is 340. So he then said, well, then my zone two is 290 to 340. And my zone one is 290 and below, yeah. which I, I heard and kind of went, ouch. And so to give you an example, um, you know, as Chris always makes fun of me, I am pure, pure aerobic animal. There is not a fast twitch muscle fiber anywhere in my body. I have said this many times, a three-year-old on a tricycle could take me in a sprint. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when you said earlier about people taking, uh, going into four-digit numbers for sprints. I don't know, Trevor, what do you got? <laughs> 999 for sprints, above, above a thousand. Yeah, I used thousand. to have a friend who actually now rides pro tour, so in my defense, he and I were having a contest to see who could break a thousand watts first. <laughs> and it took us a while, but we were both breakaway monsters. Like I am the guy that likes to just break away, put my head down, and, you know, where I have my strength is that that LT1. I have a very high LT1. That being right. said, and I think this is, is fairly typical of, of what you see people thinking of as their zone one. 
So my FTP right now, according to both WKO and, and my own testing, is right around 375 watts. My zone one is up to... So about, how, now, tell, now, tell me, just so I understand, how long can you hold 375? About an hour. Okay, so that's a 60-minute value for you. That right. is a 60 yeah. So that, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of an aerobic guy. Um, yep. Like when I do a 20-minute test, I'm, I'm closer to 400. Okay. So, so 375, 370-ish is, is about right for me. And I have my zone one up to about 260 on a, on a really good day, 270 watts. Yeah. And mine is, as a cyclist, I was the domestic because I can't win a sprint, but I can sit on the front of the field and make everybody suffer. Right. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatec. The more you train, the better your recovery needs to be. Normatec's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skunch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team using the Normatec boots and recovery station set up for riders at races like the Colorado Classic. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Save $100 with code FASTTALK18, that's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K-1-8 at normatechrecovery.com. Let's get back to the show. Sorry, Chris is just going up. You can't hear this, but his daughter is playing on the xylophone. So we're trying to stop her. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> we have a little music for the background of this episode. Um, <laughs> given to us by, by Annika, the, the three-year-old. So before we leave determining your zones, really the, the last question that I have for you is, how do you determine those those three zones, or your LT1, LT2 uh, in terms of heart rate? Again, we have some typical values, but the individual variation is, is big enough that we don't like to just throw out blank numbers. But again, like I said, that 60-minute power will probably put the athlete pretty close to 90% of heart rate peak, you know, in that 87 to 92, 3 range the average will end up being probably 88 or something because the first 15 minutes probably feel pretty okay. And, and then, then you, you know, the drift starts moving you into a heart rate zone that's more typical of interval training, you know, the low end of interval training. So the, the, the drift of heart rate is, is kind of tricky. So it's hard to, you know, we have to decide in a 60-minute power test where, what heart rate do we say that was my maximum lactate steady state heart rate? Yeah, I will say I – tend to look for a point where the heart rate's fairly level. If somebody does a test and their heart rate is rising the entire time, that to me tells me they were actually a little over their threshold, a little over LT2, and that's too high a heart rate. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And that, that, like for me today, I found that I, once I got to about 90, I stayed there for most of the time. Uh, right at the end, it's crept up to 91 or two, I think. And then, so I agree with you that, that you should be able to find a, you know, a, a big chunk of a, of a 60 minute power test where heart rate is pretty darn stable. 
and and then I would also say for these low intensity rides, if if at least if you're on a, a trainer and you're clearly in a LT, you know, a low intensity modus, then heart rate should really stay flat. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's a that's a good quality indicator of the session that yep you're you're you're, you're where you need to be you're at seventy percent of heart rate peak or you know something like that and it's just it's just staying nice and flat mm-hmm. and and you need to hydrate you need to make sure you have I, I want to point out for people that if they do these sessions on a trainer you know the tests they need to have a fan you know they should have try to make sure that they're getting cooling evaporative cooling because you know. The, the missing element in the on the trainer is is that you're sitting still and so you don't have that that uh, good air exchange. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure everybody everybody who lives in warm areas learns this real fast. Even I in Norway had to buy a a big big fan this 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 summer yep. uh, because I was you know it was just too warm and the rides were, were too hard without without the fan. And, right. So so that's important. If, you know the testing needs to you need to make sure that you you are getting good evaporative cooling. Something I'll add is when I prescribe these zone one rides to my athletes, I do it by heart rate, not by power for exactly what you were saying. If you're going out and doing a four or five hour ride and you start at 200 Watts, that might be your zone one. But by the end of that five hours, you might be well into zone two because of of that effect of cardiac drift, um, where your, your zone one heart rate is your zone one heart rate. Even if your, your power is plummeting. You know, again, it's a huge ballpark, but I tend to put uh, LT1 at about 85, 83 to 85% of, of LT2. Are you talking the heart rate? The heart rate, yeah. Yeah. So maybe we need to put some number. See, I, I tend to, I tend to, percentages of percentages tend to get tricky. So I right. tend to reference everything to heart rate peak. What's your high, what's your peak heart rate? And then, so I, if I were to use my heart rate peak or, or in, in testing, we find the heart rate peak of our athletes and then we just refer to that as a, a percentage of that. Yeah, I have noticed in, in the research, you always use the peak. Yeah, because it's just, it's just a, a, a reference. Otherwise, you end up kind of taking percentages of percentages and, and then most people get a bit confused. So I try to just take a percentage of 100. 100 is you know heart rate peak. It's the highest heart rate that you see during cycling ever what percentages would you have uh, lt2 and lt1 at yeah so then based on that then i would say lt1 in terms of where i want them riding at in a, in a low intensity ride they're probably going to be at somewhere around 70 percent of heart rate peak they may be as low as early on in the ride 60 three or four, and then they drift a little bit up, but they, they shouldn't go above 75% of heart rate peak for the whole ride. Okay. That's, that's a typical low intensity ride. So um, you would have LT1, the, the top end of it be about 75% of your max heart rate. Yeah. It, it's, it's ballpark. It, yeah. It's, if they're really well trained, it might be a little bit higher, but, it, but again, I, I think it's reasonable to start with something conservative and then just mm. over the weeks and months adjust a little bit. So 75 is probably not too bad as an, as an estimate, 75% of heart rate peak. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then steady state will be more like 85, 86, 87, mm-hmm. okay. the, the LT2 right. as a percentage of heart rate peak. 
And just to, to throw some numbers, and my heart rate numbers are, are fairly typical, pretty close to what I see with a lot of athletes. My LT2, so my my um, anaerobic threshold heart rate, whatever, you, MLSS, whatever you would like to call it, uh, is right yeah. around 172. So I have my aerobic threshold, and again, this was measure, all measured in a lab. Uh, my aerobic threshold, or, or the top end of my zone one, is around 144 beats per minute. 144, yeah. But, but what's your peak heart rate? I haven't hit it too much lately, but it's right around 184, 185, possibly a little lower. Okay. So, yeah, that's yeah. probably a little outdated. I'd say probably closer to 181 and 182. Haven't hit it recently. What have you been doing? I don't like going that hard. <laughs> yeah, but 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 I mean, you're you're well trained, and that's that's you're at ninety two, ninety three percent of your heart rate peak, uh, and that's you know that doesn't surprise me on a, on a really well trained guy. Typical people coming into the lab, they're going to hit it a bit lower. They're gonna they're going to be at their LT two at just under 90%, maybe 86, right. seven, eight, but you're, you're fitter. You, you're, and that's, you're more representative of an elite uh, level performer. So that number doesn't surprise me, right. but it's, but it's upper end. It's upper end of what we see. Yeah. But the, the, the key point that I do want to, to show with mine is, as you said, I'm at the upper end. And when I tell people how low the, the top end of my zone one is and heart rate, again, I get that response of, I would fall over if I rode at that heart rate. Yeah. And I'm doing a lot of my zone one rides, even though that's a top end. My zone one rides, I'm often in the 120s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's you're doing what we see <laughs> uh, elite performers do. The, I was watching yesterday the European Championships in running, and, and a Norwegian kid, he's 17. Uh, the day before yesterday, he won the 1,500 meters in the European Championships. Again, he's 17, youngest ever to win a gold mm -hmm. medal in the European Championships in 84 years. And then 24 hours later, he ran the 5,000 meter and he won that too. Wow. And then <laughs> 17 years old and just dominated. And and he, when they, they were doing a kind of a package on him and he's running, and I was thinking, damn, he's running slow. I could run with him. <laughs> uh, you know, but <laughs> – but he was running a you know an easy session and 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 it was easy. I could even look at it and say, well, he's actually running really easy. But I also know that when these guys do their hard interval sessions, they are just absolutely inhuman. Yeah. Uh, that's that's that yin and yang that that I think a lot of people are missing. Uh, Shanae Flanagan she tweeted just the other day she, she had done some really tough intervals and and she wrote endurance equals speed hmm. and and that what she was saying is is you know her speed was pretty darn good because she's matured and has the really deep endurance uh you know shanane flanagan for the non-running crowd is the the first wo american woman to win the new york city marathon in like three decades or four decades or something so yeah yeah, so she's this. I just love the quote. She says, "You know, even when I'm doing ordinary training, I'm preparing for something extraordinary." And I think that's kind of the mentality that we see that maybe our our well-meaning amateur crowd is missing out on is that a lot of the work that prepares you for the personally extraordinary is feels pretty ordinary, but it needs to be done. Yep. 
you, you can't be going out and racing every ride. You, you have to do some of the just get the work done. No, it's just it's just the patience. The the uh, again, an expression I learned in Norway is this idea of eating the cake and making the cake. And and most training needs to be about making the cake. In other words, just the boring process of building resources. And then occasionally we have training sessions where we really eat into our reserves. We dig in. Uh, we we test the limits of what we are able to do. But that can't happen too often. And so in comparison to how often we eat the cake, we need, we better darn well make sure that most of the time we're making cake or else the math's not going to go up. It's not going to work, if that makes sense. You know, we're, we're going to eat into our reserves and we're going to stagnate. I think that's a, an extremely pertinent point is the psychological component here because if you are used to um, riding a different way or using a different model or you just <laughs> or you just can't let go of some of these big numbers. Um, once you do latch on to the three-zone concept, once you start actually abiding by the, the limits you've put on your different zones, at first you're going to be like, man, this is so slow. This is not going to be doing anything for me. This is too slow. You know, there's that mentality. Yeah. Like I think we've mentioned it before, the three of us, in the U.S. particularly, no pain, no gain. But there is a lot of gain to be had from these slow rides. So Chris, when he was training for Dirty Kansas, which is this 13-hour event, I had him doing a ton of these zone one rides, and especially riding very close to his LT1. And his first response was that. He's like, I'm going to fall over. This feels so slow. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm the opposite of Trevor. I'm totally anaerobic most, most of the year, and we were trying to reinvent me, Chris Case, into – Trevor Connor, basically, we were trying to turn me into something else. And so, yeah, those those rides felt ridiculously slow. And that that's what I get. That's what I mean by that psychological component. Some people just need time to wrap their heads around how slow is zone one. And it's can be pretty slow. It depends on the person, of course. Everybody's different, but... It, well, the thing I want to say is, but but that's how it feels for the first hour. But right. then, then comes the second hour. Right. And, and the third hour which a lot of people unfortunately don't do, it's, it's fly and die. So how did it feel for you by the time you were at the third and fourth hour? Right. It's a, it's a different situation at that point. It starts to wear you down in a different way. And That's it's, right. it's interesting too that people will, will ask, well, can I just skip those first couple hours and uh, get to that third and fourth hour and, and make it that hard all the time? And you're like, no, there's certain things you can't cut corners on this. <laughs> and that's when I get athletes to go out and do these rides for the first time, that's the response I get. They go, initially it felt very slow. There was never a point where I was really struggling. They say by the end of that four or five hours, and you, you need those longer rides to really get the benefits. They say, yeah. I was fatigued. I was really fatigued, just fatigued in a very different way from what I'm used to. Yeah, I used to always use the analogy that, that these kind of rides, these long, intensive, you empty, you feel empty when, mm -hmm. you're, right. when you're finished. And one of the ways I tell athletes to, to see, am I in the right zone is, man, when you come off a ride like that, you should just feel like you can go straight to the dinner table <laughs> and, just <Right>. start, <laughs> and just start filling the tanks. Because yeah. you, haven't, you haven't created a big sympathetic response, but you have really emptied the system. You've used a lot of energy and, and you need to fill the tank. Whereas when you do, you, you guys know, when you do a really tough interval session, most people have a real hard time sitting at the dinner table right after one of those or even 
half an hour after one of those because of this sympathetic response. So that's one of the ways I always use just a, a poor man's way of saying, all right, were you in the right zone? You should be able to go straight to the dinner table after this workout if, you, if the goal was a low-intensity session. Right. Um, again, to just give some numbers and some ideas. So you've heard what my numbers are. I will frequently go out and do the these uh, zone one rides. And I have two types. There, there's one where I ride right at that LT1 or just below it. But quite frequently when I go out and do four or five hour rides. Um, uh, so remember, again, my FTP is 370-ish. I will average 180, 170 watts on these long rides. And I have a lot of athletes with FTPs closer to 280 who say, I could never go out and do a 170-watt ride. I'd fall over. That's way too slow. Right. And that's, that's how slow I'm doing them, to give you an idea. I mean, this is, this is not killing yourself. And, and, but you're doing it for four hours, you know, and, and that's really important. It's intensity times duration. We have to think about that as the signal is, is both the, the intensity that you're working at, but also the duration. So when these athletes say, well, yeah, I, I could never do that. Well, they tend to want to shorten things up, but you're doing the work. And, and that's what we see with elite athletes is there, there are no shortcuts. You need to do the first two hours to really get the benefit of the second two hours mm -hmm. uh, because you're, you're creating some conditions in the, in the muscles that are important for signaling adaptation. So that's, that's the nerdy science of it, but there's just no – there's not a shortcut there. You can't bypass the first two hours. I guess the only thing you could do on a, in terms of bypass, and it would be related to your nutrition, that you can actually be partially fasted. You can train uh, before breakfast, which may help you to move into a fat utilization modus faster. So th there's a few things we might could do there, but, but otherwise there's really no shortcuts. Oh, I, absolutely. I agree. But so I will say the probably the most researched article I ever wrote was about is there a value to the long ride? And, and I am a strong believer that there are things uh, that you get out of a four or five hour ride that you can't get any other way. And it sounds like you're very much in agreement with that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at least, you know, most of the research we have in the lab really doesn't go beyond a couple of hours. But even in that span, you see that there's just a big difference between what happens, say, in the first 45 minutes and what happens after in terms of fat metabolism and so forth. Uh, and then if we just look at the realities of watching pro riders develop, we see that uh, some of these guys, it takes several or multiple years before they're able to truly handle the longest classics, you know, these six-hour races. They, they've just – got to have an um, uh, immense amount of volume. So obviously there's something happening because their, their VO2 max is not increasing, their threshold powers are not changing, but they're getting better at something that we're not measuring very well in a laboratory. Right. And I think that's one of our weaknesses in laboratory testing is we're not able to really account for this biological durability and sustainability that develops with those long rides. Oh, I agree completely. And so the, the theory that I ultimately landed on in this article, um, which actually came out of a lot of your research, you know, we need to train those, those 2A and 2X fibers. But as you point out, above a certain intensity, you build up autonomic stress. And that's what leads to burnout. 
the the great thing about the the long ride, and you brought this up at the very beginning of the the podcast, is you get that fiber cycling, which is you know even though we say slow twitch fibers are don't ever fatigue, that's more theoretical. In reality, they do start to get tired, and on a five hour ride, you start cycling through muscle fibers, so you start recruiting even at low intensities those two A fibers and sometimes even those two X fibers. So you're actually training those other fibers, which you normally you can only get with, hit with, with high intensity work. You're now training them with low intensity work without building up autonomic stress. And you're also forcing those fibers to work more aerobically. And, and there's big gains to both of those. At least that, that's where I landed with the article, but I was always very interested in, in how you felt about that theory. Well, it goes back to some really good research by guys. The Bruin was a Bel- I believe, Belgian in- investigator that studied horses. Carl Foster has done some work. Others have done this work around the idea of training monotony. That one of the best ways to overtrain an organism is to subject them to re- just daily stress that that is uh, at the same level. And, and that's, that's what happened with horses is that when horses, when their easy days were made harder, they fell apart. When their hard days were made harder, they, they, they were able to handle it. And so the concept of training monotony, I think, goes right to the heart of why polarized training works is that we, we, wanted, we want to keep a lot of the training, what I would call under the stress radar. We want to train signal adaptation at the, at the muscular level without turning on this big stress response because every time you turn that on, if you turn it on repeatedly, then you actually, what actually happens is the body starts to lose the ability to mobilize. You start to stagnate. You start to lose your last gear. We see this in tour riders in the end of a three three weeks stage race. They they can't hit peak heart rate. Their their yeah. peak heart rate actually drops. That's because they are becoming essentially they're overreaching. They are achieving this this monotony, this this stress monotony. So that's why when they when they get finished with a three week stage race, they've got to decompress and really ride easy for a while. So. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and, and I think that's what elite athletes are very good at is is managing the the training so that they don't ex- turn on that stress response too often. But when they do, then they they kick butt, but they stay under the radar a lot with low intensity training. Notice that I said the theory I landed on, and not the theory I came up with when I was talking about the long ride. What makes my job one of the best jobs in the world is I get to spend a Sunday morning talking with people much smarter than me, like Dr. Seiler. Another much smarter person and big name in exercise physiology is Dr. John Hawley in Australia, who has been at the forefront of endurance sport and nutrition research for over two decades. I interviewed him for my article on the value of long rides, and here's what he had to say. The longer you go, the more you tend towards free fatty acid oxidation. But, but again, you've got to remember that unless you're doing a five-hour race at that pace, it doesn't necessarily help racing. All it does is build up extra capillaries. Again, it gets the muscle used to using fat and turning on beta oxidation and all these you know, adaptations of the muscle which you know about. So yes, there, there is a point to that, but 
again, when I send you the articles, you'll see that if it's a race situation, at the end of the day, even if it's a three-hour race, it's carbohydrate-dependent and not fat-dependent. Having said that, having the ability to utilize fat at the highest rates possible uh, is an advantage uh, in, in long endurance events. The great New Zealand coach, Arthur Lydiard, you know, coached uh, probably half a dozen Olympic gold medalists, you know, he'd even have runners like Peter Snell, who won the 800 and 1500, doing very long Sunday morning runs, sometimes up to 20 miles. And Snell, if you talk to him now, I know Peter reasonably well, he'd say, look, I'm not not quite sure why I was doing it at the time, but now, you know, he's an exercise physiologist at Southwestern Texas. And he said, look, you know, now I know the physiology behind this. The other thing that the rides do is go through the whole fiber population. If you just go out and ride for an hour, yeah, you'll tap into some slow twitch fibers and you do this and you do that. But by going along and almost going to exhaustion at that submaximal pace, you are then asking the muscles to recruit the slow twitch fibers the fast twitch A and the fast twitch B. And unless you do very high intensity intervals, I don't think you do that. So you've got two ways of tapping into that fiber population. Either go long and slow to exhaustion or or basically, you know, do high intensity and wipe them all out anyway. So I think another advantage of the long, long ride uh, is is to get all the fibers active. And at the end of those rides, you're calling on fibers like the two A's and two B's, which aren't that used or aren't that good to do in that endurance. And I think that's an important thing as well to to make sure that all the all the fiber population has been recruited and has that potential to to use as much fat as it actually can the 2b fiber isn't very good at that but um use use everything you've got type thing and that's another reason for doing a long ride we often do rides to exhaustion in the lab and you know they're fine for the first hour you get to the second hour it gets a bit tougher and you get to the third hour the workload hasn't changed but of course the fiber recruitment has and 2b fibers don't like working at 250 watts they prefer working at 550 for 30 seconds so it's a really hard ask of the muscle but only by using the muscle and driving it to that point do you actually recruit it so and i think that's a very important reason in fact i put that right up there as with with fat burning the recruitment pattern is vital yeah and you know steve's done some great work on the polarized training and that if you look at the rowers and the cyclists and probably even the runners you know there's this huge volume of uh, i mean let's just call it steady state aerobic work and and it's peppered in between with very bits of high intensity or even super maximal intensity. And again, that seems to be what works for the athlete. I'm not sure you need to, to do intervals all year round. I'm not sure really how long you need to do intervals for. You know, if you want to get really, really sharp, my guess is you can probably do this in three to six weeks. And if you look at a periodized training program, if you're looking at that intensity, uh, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't do two sessions of intensity a day and i'd probably only do two maximum of three a week anyway you know with cyclists probably probably two when we've done our training interventions uh eight times five minute sets with the cyclists which again it's in the literature you can read that you know we've only done we've done three a week and that's that's been tops um but any more and i think you probably go over the top I, i really do think two to three sessions at the top level is, is all you can handle of those real intense stuff. And when I say intense, I mean glycogen stripping, high carbohydrate, right. high absolute power outputs or speeds, and, you know, the actual work time, probably 30 to 40 minutes maximum. Let's get back to the conversation and pull it all together, addressing the question of how to map out a polarized week. And that's a, that's a perfect uh, segue into what we should talk about next, which is something that you've found in research from 
the many, many elite athletes you've, you've tested over the years, this distribution of 80-20 or even 90-10 of slow, steady, easy work versus the super high intense work that these uh, athletes are capable of. And, and how does that apply to the regular guy out there that maybe doesn't have so much time? Maybe you could give us first a quick refresher on the 80-20 or even 90-10 split that you're seeing in the data. Yeah, and I will quickly mention we've had a lot of questions, emails, and, and um, tweets asking us, how do you determine if you're, you're doing 80-20 or even the 90-10? The so definitely people are looking for some clarity of how to execute this. So there's two ways to go about it. And, and, and I think the most legitimate or most realistic way is to think of it in terms of putting your training, your entire training sessions into three different categories. It was either a low intensity session, it was a threshold oriented session, or it was a high intensity session. Now, what I mean by that is what was the goal of the session? What was the main work part of the session geared at? If it was a low intensity session, then that doesn't mean that you didn't maybe pop up into the threshold zone a couple of times as you were climbing a hill, but the vast majority of the entire session was low intensity. You never really felt like you were out of breath. Then you put it in the box, low intensity. Now, if you purposefully did three times 20 minutes at your threshold power, well, then now that's a threshold session. You may have done some warm-up and some cool-down that were at lower intensities, but the main focus of the session was that you wanted to be in, in zone two in this, in this three-zone model. So that's where you put that session in your, in, in your categorization. And then finally, of course, if you're doing interval training and you know f six times four minutes at 92% of heart rate max, well, that's a zone three session. Even though you may have done a 30-minute warm-up at low intensity and a cool-down, the, the, the key component of the session was hard and so it's a zone three does that make sense so this is called this is a categorical way of yes. distributing sessions and it, it makes sense it actually it works really well and this is the way that the way of describing training and training intensity distribution that was the basis for the 80 20 proposition or the 80 20 description that we said 80 percent of sessions are low intensity and then 20 percent are zone two or zone three. Mm. But that got kind of converted from, from many into time. They said, oh, I've got to be at, hmm. you know, zone two or three, 20% of the time. That turns out to be a lot. Right. That's not, for most people, that's not sustainable. We even did a study where we just looked at all the same training sessions, but analyzed them different ways. And what we found was, is that if an athlete is following an 80-20 model, then the time in zone will end up being around 90-10. Yep. One of our listeners actually emailed in and said, I can't believe you can get any benefits from this. So he gave an example with the 90-10 saying, if I train eight hours a week, that means only, he calculated to only 48 minutes at, at any sort of high intensity effort. And he said, I can't get fit doing that. <laughs> well, then then he should do what he wants to do. <laughs> but, but so like, let me, I, I, I replied back to him. I actually have a chart that shows each week how much time my athletes um, spend at 90. So 90% of um, LT2 
up to all the way up to the, their, their peak power. So it just adds up that time and it color codes it in terms of from 90% to 100% of LT2, and then the, the 100 to 120%, which is that VO2 max range, and then all the time above that. So I have mine here. And to give you an idea, because I, I train very polarized. I train about 14 hours a week. I average around 13 to 14 hours per week. And it says that my average time per week at 90% of LT2 or higher is an hour eight. Yeah. And that's 14 hours of training a week. So when he so said- you're, you're less than 10, you're at like six, 7%, something like that. Yep. Something I'll, I'll throw in. So a few of the, the people who, who emailed in saying, I can't believe this 80, 20, the, or the 90, 10, even when you do it by just pure time, that it could be that beneficial. So I emailed back to them and sorry to keep using my data, but it's readily available and I, I don't have permission to, to use my athlete's data. But also just, you know, as I said, I train polarized. I'm 47 years old. I'm, I'm one of the oldest guys in North America who's still racing in the, the pro races. So I'd like to say that, that it, it works. And here's uh, just quickly, I'll, I'll run off a, a, a week of my training, just to give you an idea of how slow slow is and, and how much high intensity work you do. So this, and you can look this up on Strava. So starting Thursday, July 19th, I did a, a 3.5 hour ride where I went to the local 25 minute time trial and buried myself in that time trial. Then I rode around easy for a bit and then I did some interval work. So that was a big day and that was getting a lot of good intensity. Then the next day, it was a 1.5 hour ride where I averaged 136 watts. <laughs> the Saturday, and uh, this is in Toronto. I'm in a big city, so you do a lot of stopping. So the, these wattages get really low. But if I was out in open roads, uh, you know, add 20 watts. Yeah. The Saturday, I went out for a 3.5 hour ride, and this was out in the country, and uh, I averaged 125 beats per minute, uh, 198 watts. Uh, so again, pretty easy ride. Sunday, um, I was uh, had a race. I was working for a teammate, so I got on the front of the field, and for an hour and a half, I averaged 320 watts because that was my job for him to get him set up for when the attacks happened. The attacks happened. I, of course, went out the back because I had just done an hour and a half time trial or close to time trial, and then just continued riding at right at my uh, LT1 to get some good training and, and made a four-hour ride of it. Then Monday and Tuesday, I did nothing. Wednesday, I went out for an hour spin, averaging 113 watts. Thursday, <laughs> a 1.5-hour ride, averaging 134 watts, 97 beats per minute. Then Friday, I went and did four-by-10-minute hill repeats at 400, 380 to 400 watts. So good, hard efforts. Um, and the last one, I actually did a 14-minute hill repeat. Then the Saturday, I went out for a 4.5 hour, what I call aerobic threshold ride, or that's right at that LT1. And I, I went out with a friend. So I ended up averaging 212 watts, but, but that's because when I was at uh, LT1, um, so right around 260 watts, I was doing about 37 kilometers an hour, and he kept yelling at me to slow down. <laughs> so that's no, kind I mean, of my training. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. No, it's. Uh, at least I would, I think most of our listeners would be extremely happy to be able to, put, you know, do some of those powers on the upper end that you talk about. Uh, so obviously what you're doing is, is working. 
And it's and it's totally in line with what we see from the best cross country skiers in the world. We have data on former world record holders in distance running that we have data on cyclists. So you're what you're describing is is it's not crazy to me because I've seen it in the best in the world. Uh, but again, people misunderstand this idea that, you know, when you're doing these long rides, it just means you're just lazy and, you know, but when you do, when you go hard, you go darn hard, you know, an hour and a half at 330 Watts is not something most people can do. Uh, and it's tough training and, and you packaged it with other hours of training. So you, your total training load for that session was, was huge. Uh, that's what I saw. I heard in a couple of years is that you you also tend to you pack an interval session into a longer session. Yep. Which which even adds more. You know that means that that overall session is one very representative of racing and two very demanding. So so you know people need to understand that these days are tough. You know, it's also you know going back to what you, you what you've shown in the in your research that um, two high intensity sessions per week is great. Three doesn't really show any more gains, and if you start doing four in a week, you're you're going to start pushing burnout very quickly. And more, what I see is with athletes who are doing trying to do four high intensity sessions per week, they're always fatigued, so they're never really that hard. So my approach is I'm only going to do a couple hard days um, in a week. And, and you saw in between just how easy my easy days were. But when I'm doing a hard day, I'm going to make it hard. I'm going to make it count. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of the, the bottom line. And if I were to bring you into a lab and do a lactate profile on you, we would probably see that your blood lactate for the, you know, in the low intensity zone is really low, I suspect. And, and it stays just flat and low for, you know, first 100, 125, 150, 175, 200. And then when it finally pops, when it finally goes up, it's just a very clear uh, yes. increase. That's, the, that's, that's what we see with really well-trained endurance guys that do, do the low intensity, collect the time at low intensity, do the high. They get that profile that just flat as can be and then just a very sharp, clear inflection when they hit their threshold. What we see with typical weekend warriors and, and amateurs is that they have two millimolar lactate on their first, you know, measurement, and then it just kind of goes up from there. There's the, they don't have that clear break, and they and they they don't have any intensity at which they really have nice low lactate measurements. Uh, so they they've got this kind of lack of metabolic control. Right, and that's something when I analyze people's lactate tests, especially when somebody's new. And as you said, they, they don't have that endurance. I often show them that graph and explain to them, you're working that top end. So I point to where they're at four to sometimes 10, 11 millimoles and saying, all you're training is trying to train that side of it. We actually need to be training the, the, the left side of that graph, bringing it down to one millimoles and seeing how long we can keep you below two millimoles. And people mm -hmm. neglect that because that's that long, slow, easy training that people think isn't beneficial. Yeah, so so the, the best predictor probably of elite cyclists, the pro guys, would be what's their LT1 power. <laughs> you know, and you would see that their LT1 power is just so much higher than the average amateur. 
We've had this conversation with uh, Dr. Inigo San Milan, who's worked with some of the, the top tour writers, and that's what he said. He said, I don't, it, it is all about LT1, and it is all about training LT1 for, for your, your pro tour athletes. Well, to jump in and play devil's advocate a little bit, perhaps this person is like, I am a sprinter, I am a this or that, and they're not the kind of guy like you are that is geared towards sitting on the front. And so there's that uh, mental piece there that he just doesn't think that he can get that top end. And again, I'm not saying this is truth. I'm saying that maybe this is his mentality here. He's mm. like, ooh, I don't, I can't get the top end at only doing 48 minutes of of high intensity work each week. Dr. Sather, this is where I love your research pointing out, uh, A, the issues of autonomic stress, but B, also the fact that there doesn't seem to be really any gains of doing more than two high intensity sessions per week. No, uh, we, we just haven't seen it. And, and we're not the only ones. You know, you can, you can maybe see a little bump for a few weeks, but it, it's not sustainable. And the other thing I, I point out, I used to work with speed skaters and, and speed skaters do a lot of racing at very high, you know, it's, it's short races. And, and we had 500 meter guys and thousand meter guys that were world champions on the team. And, and when I came in, I said, look, we're going we're gonna to do a bit more endurance work. And, and I remember one of these guys, a gold medalist uh, in 98, he said, I- I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my first 200, which is it's kind of the equivalent of the last of the sprint and cycling. Mm-hmm. I said, no, you won't. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to make sure that you are able to sustain and the last 200, you don't lose as much power because the cost of those first 200 meters of gaining a second there is much bigger than avoiding the loss of a second at the end of the race. Hmm. And all he had to do, he he, he did much more reg, low intensity, much more long interval sessions he ended up winning in the Dutch championships, the 500, the 1,000, and the 1,500 meter, which he never did before. But all we had to do was just occasionally do very specific sprint sessions just to maintain what he was already good at. And that's what I would say to these cyclists that say, hey, I've got a 1,500-watt peak, and I don't want to lose it. I say, you won't, but, but you're going to do some very specific maintenance sessions for that. Meanwhile, we're going to work on your weaknesses. We're going to work on you being able to get to the finish fresher, having used less of your capacity so that you have an even bigger jump. You have an even more explosive jump because, you know, like we talked about earlier in the interview, that you've maintained, you haven't had to go into your reserves. And so that's, we're not trying, we're not going to take away that top end. But we're going to add to it with a broader base. And, and something to be really aware of is that that peak peak sprint power, that 1500 watts, more than anything, that is genetic. You have it or you don't. If you don't have it, you're never going to be an amazing sprinter. And if you do have it, you're really never going to lose it. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's what I had to we had to <laughs> convince our speed skaters of that. Uh, ultimately, they understood that it was true, uh, but but they had this. They had to feel it and see it for themselves. But but it is you're, you're right. This is in some ways very similar to what Colby Pierce has said on this program a couple of times about you're making 
you're making soup or in, in Dr. Seiler's analogy, you're making Love cake the salt analogy. and, and the, the threshold work, the interval work, uh, is just adding that little bit of salt to season the soup right at the right time. Yeah. And, and we did, a, I published a study with uh, German colleagues back some years ago where the, we had data from German national track cyclists, elite ju- juniors. So about a third of the sample were world championship medalists. So this was a very high performance group. And we looked at their training and it turns out that the German Cycling Federation, the only test they do is just power at four millimolar lactate. They don't even do a, a, any of the high intensity stuff. And, and these are track cyclists, hmm. world champion juniors. The only test they bother to do is just say, well, we want to know what their four millimolar power is because it's a good reference point for their endurance. Well, there's that great study of the German team that won the uh, Olympic pursuit um, and showed yeah. that they were doing all uh, endurance work. They did not do any specific track work until nine days before the Olympics. Yeah, it was quite a – it was York and Schumacher, that study. It was 30,000 kilometers of, of riding, and I went into that in detail. It's a, it's a wonderful study, and they were the first to go under four minutes for the, the pursuit. And so uh, – but, it, but it, you're right. It was just a tremendous amount. They used stage racing. They used – they did mostly road riding, and, and just occasionally, I think 21 times in a year, they were on the track. Yeah. So – you know, and then they set a world record. <laughs> Bradley Wiggins, and, and, and you know, was a track guy. David Martin, who used to work with the Australian uh, Oracle Green Edge guys, he he was saying how they would come off the tour, and then two weeks later they're ready to r- race in the in the uh, world championships on the track, which is quite amazing. But but the tour they just they were using the tour as volume training. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. One thing I would ask, in, in other sports that I work with and do research on, as athletes progress and move towards higher level, they tend to split to a, a, a two-a-day framework where at least some days of the week they'll train twice. And that's less common in cycling, I think would be fair to say, much less common. And, and there's reasons for that. You know, Obviously, the four-hour races require training. You need to be on the bike a lot. You need to get used to that. However, I was, I'm curious whether or not the amateur groups, people my age that are racing, you know, they're racing shorter races, they have time, time difficulties. Is there ever a time where we might say, well, you know, if you can squeeze in an hour on the bike in the morning and then another session in the evening, then you're collecting time. You're, you're getting more volume in total. If that if that works for you, then that's that's a reasonable thing to do. And then use the weekends for your long rides. Do you see any of that? Yeah, I personally am biased towards keep it to to one ride a day. And the, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the value of the long ride, and can get, give some explanations for that. But I always say, as a coach, there's the ideal, and then there's life. And right. if it's the difference between, you know, if I'm working with a pro, I'm going to say, no, go out and do two and a half hours in the morning because you're going to be on the couch the rest of the day anyway. For somebody who has a life and doesn't have that two hours, two and a half hours in a day. Yeah, that, you know, then, then get the morning ride, get the afternoon ride. It might, in my opinion, might not be quite as good, but it's still better than not getting the rides. Yeah. And, and I guess that's what I'm trying to say is I, I don't think it's as good or optimal, but I, 
I think that maybe some listeners might find that it helps them get through a midweek crisis where they just don't have time. Uh, if they're like me in my, in my real job, I just don't have time to do three hour training sessions in, in, in the afternoon or, or so forth. So, cause I'm still working. So I think it, some, you know, exposure to training, collecting time, you know, whether it's two sessions or one, it's, it, two is definitely better than, than not get, being able to train. You know, this, that, that's this continuity issue is, is we want them to be able to train as often as possible. The only thing I'm going to warn against, because I've seen this with a lot of athletes where they go, I'm only on the bike for an hour. Even if they're you know doing an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, they go, it's only for an hour. So I got to make the most of it. So they just sit yeah. smack dab in the middle of that zone too to make it feel like they did a workout. And that's the yeah. one danger. And so what I tell athletes if they're doing two a days is make one of those easy. You know, my ride at 113 watts, spin the legs, maybe do a little neuromuscular work, but keep one easy. And then maybe think about doing some true quality in, in the other one, but don't sit in that in between. Don't sit in that zone too. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think you, I, I even, uh, every once in a while, I even do two sessions just to play with it. And, and if I do what I want to on the first session, I forget that I did it. If you, you know, in other words, it was easy enough that I actually, hey, wait a minute, I trained this morning, uh, yeah. because the intensity was low enough that you get finished and you just feel great, you feel totally just ready for the day instead of feeling like, oh, I think I actually did a pretty tough workout. So, agree with you a hundred percent. If they split it in two, then at least then one of the two, if not both, needs to be easy, Agreed. really easy. Agreed. Neither Dr. Seiler nor I had a particularly scientific reason for two-a-days. But sometimes there's a good reason to do something even if there isn't scientific evidence showing its benefits. This was certainly the opinion of Kiel Reisnen, a world tour rider with Trek Segafredo, when asked about two-a-days versus long rides. One quick note. When Kiel refers to Zone 2 rides, that's on a five-zone model where Zone 2 is right at LT1. So do you think there's ever an argument or times where you say, no, you really need to, to keep it to one workout? Yes. And those, those are the workouts where you're looking for a very specific type of adaption that only occurs after X number of hours riding at a certain pace. You know, the, the kind of rides I'm thinking about are those so-called zone two rides, medium rides, where you're really working on your body's efficiency at, at being able to just sit in the pack kind of is, is how I think of it. It's like a when you sprint at the end of a race, it's not going to get you up the manioc wall or up the, the murder tree. It's, it's, it's about getting you to the bottom of that, not already fucked, for lack of a better term. So those kind of rides require sustained, steady effort. And you're not doing threshold. You're not, you know, dancing around on glass pedals. You're just riding and it's uncomfortable not uncomfortable for two hours or even three it's uncomfortable to hold for four or five hours and i don't think as far as i know and that, that doesn't say a lot but as far as i know that type of adaption is, is much harder to get if you're splitting up the workout right that being said i think there are a surprising number of adaptations that uh are um that you can gain without having to do those hours on the bike I, that are not, um, it's not a requirement or prerequisite for, for those, those adaptions. So I think that it's worth looking into 
be mixing this up some more. Um, right. It's definitely something I've thought about a lot because I, I know for me, uh, on a purely subjective side, that doing these workouts split up is is really important for me if I'm feeling mentally taxed. If I'm if my kind of CNS system is like hitting a wall, you know, if I maybe I'm three weeks through a six week training block and I'm just like, you know, banging my head against the wall kind of thing. I find that the splitting the workups workouts, um, up like that or having two workouts in a day, uh, is a big mental relief. So I'd love to find evidence, scientific evidence that, that, that actually is, you know, useful for more than just a handful of, of adaptions, the more, the more, the better, in my opinion. And I also think, for guys who aren't doing this, who can't come home and take a nap during the day uh, or start their ride at 10 o'clock, for people who work, that's it's even more important because you have an hour in the morning, maybe an hour after work, and if if they find out, hey, you know what, I can I can make some serious adaptations, nearly all the ones I need to for racing just by splitting up my workouts, then that's that's huge for that, those guys. You know, there's a handful of things that they may not be able to get, like those two rides we talked about, but if they can get most of it out of that, then that's, that's pretty huge. Even for those of us who this is, this is our job. There's, there's always life stuff getting in the way. And yep. um, sometimes it is, it's nice to just be able to have a, a different schedule on us on a certain day, whether it's your kid gets sick and, and isn't at school or can't go to daycare or you know, the car needs an oil change. Who knows? There's a million things that come up and being, uh, being stuck on the bike five hours a day definitely can, uh, can get old. Sorry to give Keel and not Dr. Seiler the final word, but hopefully that's because we'll get him back for part three where he'll definitely have the last word. I think that's probably a great place, even though we, we didn't even touch on interval work, probably a good place to uh, put a stake in this one. That's, that's been a huge amount of great information. Is there anything else that you feel needs to be added? Uh, no, not this time around. I'm, I'm happy to come back and we'll talk about interval training because I think it's important. Would love to. I, I don't want to overimpose on you, but anytime you want to come back and be part of the show, we are not going to argue. We love having you having you join us. <laughs> Third time's the charm, so we'll have to do one more then. Perfect. Thank you. So I, uh, Chris had to run up. He had a, uh, a three-year-old emergency. <laughs> so he's not with us right now, but I, I will say thank you on his behalf and definitely say thank you on, uh, on my behalf and, and truly appreciate your, your taking some time on a Sunday afternoon. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Dr. Steven Seiler, Dr. John Hawley, Keel Reinen, Trevor Connor. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.